Hey everyone, and welcome to At The Letters for Tuesday, September the 5th, 2023. Ben Nicholson-Smith here with you on this episode produced by Christian Ryan, found wherever you find your podcast. So thanks for finding it. I know a lot of you have been uh, enjoying the pod as the stretch run continues, so stick with us here on At The Letters. And as I sit here in Toronto, I am joined by Arden Swelling from his favorite city, I think, Oakland, uh, California. Arden, how's it going? <laughs> well, I'm actually presently in San Francisco because that's the hack when you cover a, yes. a series at the Coliseum is you stay in San Francisco and you uh, leave a bit earlier for the ballpark and you get back a bit later after the game. But that's OK, because uh, San Francisco, quite a, a lovely and wonderful place to be, especially at this time of year when, when the weather is just perfect. Yeah, San Francisco, it's a city that has its own issues, obviously, but uh, comparatively, probably a lot preferable to Oakland. So I'm glad that you're there. And you were covering off the opener of this Blue Jays A's series. I was in Denver over the weekend covering off the Rockies. And I mean, I think there's a common thread actually between the way that the Blue Jays are winning, because it's like, they're winning, but they find like five times a day to almost lose the game. <laughs> these games against these absolutely awful teams like Colorado is, is so bad. They're such a bad baseball team and, and Oakland seemingly is as well. And yet, you know, end of the day, a win's a win. So I don't want to be too negative here, but it does seem like the Jays are really walking along that racer's edge. Yeah, they're not getting high marks from the judges for uh, stylistic points. Uh, these have not been the most aesthetically pleasing wins um and like as you as you said like a bunch of them have been basically pulled back from the brink of being disastrous gut punch losses so it is that time of year where you know they don't ask how they ask how many uh and the blue jays are stockpiling wins at a time that they absolutely need to because the schedule has presented them with a patch in which they are playing uh just abjectly uncompetitive competition teams that are literally eliminated from postseason contention that could if they won every game the rest of the season would not qualify for the playoffs regardless of what happened so that tells you something about what the other side is is playing for and uh you know teams where you're not saying oh they're running into hunter green today and like he's really really good or oh you know they're, they're facing max scherzer as they might next week and he's a literal hall of famer it's teams where you got guys running in from the bullpen who you've just never heard of before yeah like guys who you're going to the savant page they like, all right what does this guy throw who is he like it, that is the level of competition here so you certainly would feel better if the blue jays were taking care of business in a fashion in which they're winning seven to nothing and five to one and nine to three and uh, weren't having to have as many leverage moments as they are. But like I said, just win at this time of year and don't really worry about the style points. Well, yeah, I mean, to your point about, you know, guys you'd never heard of, like that was the whole experience of watching the Rockies play the Blue Jays, where it's like they activate Chase Anderson. He's like their number two starter. Remember Chase Anderson from I know you do, do. but you know, our our (laughs) listeners, you know, Chase Anderson, this is a guy who's like a back end starter on a bad Blue Jays team. He's starting games for the Rockies when they bring in their relievers. It's like this was the lone point this year where I've watched a baseball game and I've actively felt bad for the other team's pitchers because Daniel Bard, they just let him wear it out there. And then Justin Lawrence pretty much had a meltdown two days in a row. It like it was hard to watch, even though, you know, obviously I'm covering the team that's beating up on these guys. So, you know, the Blue Jays are going to be happy about these developments. But 
watching Justin Lawrence out there, like the point being the Rockies and the A's, they are just so bad. And so, you know, for the Jays here and the Royals too, like, I don't know what treats await us this weekend with Kansas City in town, but the Jays have to be beating up on these teams. Like even if they take two of three from Oakland and two of three from Kansas City, and, and also they already took two of three from Colorado, I still actually think that that would be kind of underwhelming. The Blue Jays should absolutely sweep Oakland. I mean, they, they took a good first step to that. It's the, the morning of Tuesday, September 5th. Or morning for me, afternoon for you, I guess. So we don't yet know what's happening in the final two games of this series. But like, it's absolutely one the Blue Jays should sweep because the opportunity that they have right now is that Houston and Texas are playing one another. So someone has to lose those games. And those are the two teams that you're directly competing with to try to get one of those final two wildcard positions. So look over the next, you know, the final two games of that Houston, Texas series, Houston won the first one rather decisively, either both of those teams will lose once or one of those teams will lose twice. So if the Blue Jays can win twice against, uh, you know, really a triple A AAA caliber lineup in the athletics, well, then they can sneak back into postseason position and feel a lot better going into, uh, you know, Rogers Center for a 10 game homestand where they start with uh, another layup against Kansas City Royals and then have four really decisive games against the, uh, the Rangers next week. Yeah, that Rangers series is going to be huge. We'll have lots to discuss. I think our next podcast will be right in the middle of that series. So it should be really interesting. I think in the meantime, like I think the Jays are probably rooting for Houston right now. Is that fair to say? Uh, yeah, I guess so. <laughs> it's like, I don't, what do you, why do you, why do you say that? I, I guess I say that because to me, Houston's getting in. Like Houston's pretty much getting to the ALCS, in my opinion. Houston's really good. Like I, I just, I don't see Houston missing it. So I, I think that, of those teams, Texas is the one that could miss. And you play Texas, you're closest to Texas. Texas, to me, is the most vulnerable. So in my mind, if you're the Jays, you're just like, destroy Texas, get Texas out of there. And then you deal with Houston later. I just think that of uh, Toronto, Houston, Texas, and Seattle, one good team is going to miss the postseason. And when you're talking about 22, 23, 24 games, when you're talking about like three, four weeks of baseball, crazy stuff can happen. Look at how the Rangers played through the first half of the season and look at how they've played over the last five to six weeks. So when the samples get this small, that's when you can get some absurd wackiness. So like I agree with you on talent, on paper, like the Houston Astros are probably the best of this four-team grouping. We're talking about those three AL West teams and the Blue Jays, but that doesn't mean that they're immune from like losing 15 of 20. Like that happens sometimes to really good teams. So, uh, yeah, we all rode off the AL East in favor of the Tampa Bay Rays midseason because of the astronomical start that they got out to. Well, how have things gone since? So, uh, you know, it wouldn't surprise me, honestly, if the Astros missed the postseason. It's not what I'm betting on. It's not what I think is likely. But I, I consider all outcomes as relatively possible at this time of year because it's baseball and it's a wacky sport. Yeah, for sure. And, and anything could happen. To me, I think the Astros and Rays are the two best teams in the American League. And, you know, so I think those are the, the teams that, are, are really worth keeping an eye on but there's but anyone I mean the, the way the playoffs are structured anything could happen so you know we'll see and for the Jays at this point you know they're obviously not winning the division it's just about can you get in even if if they're able to make it in let's say it's the three seed 
I mean, there are way worse fates than having to beat the Twins in a three-game series. I mean, that would still be, at that point, you beat the Twins, you roll on through, like who knows what happens. So there's still some very, very good outcomes on the table for the Blue Jays here. But Arden, since the last ATL dropped late last week, not only did the Blue Jays have Bo Bichette and Matt Chapman on the injured list, but Brandon Belt is now, you know, not only dealing with a back issue, but he's dealing with a viral infection out of commission for the time being as we record this. And Danny Jansen broke the knuckle on the middle finger of his right hand, and he's sidelined indefinitely, even debatable as to whether he's going to have a chance to return late October. So this is a team right now that is kind of a shell of itself. Yeah, I looked around the clubhouse the other day and was like, oh, there's Mason McCoy and there's... Ernie Clement and Davis Schneider and uh, Spencer Horowitz and Bowden Francis. And it's just like a reminder of how much a team changes over the course of a year and how all of our projections on opening day are essentially worthless because who knows what's going to happen over 162 and over six months of baseball. It's like one of those ships that sets sail from Europe heading to North America, uh, you know, way back in the day trying to to conquer and, and go on these conquests. Like you're just a totally different collection of people by the time that you get to your destination. Um, so, I, you know, the Blue Jays right now, are without their first choice catcher, their first choice third baseman, their first choice shortstop, uh, their first choice designated hitter, and oh by the way, their opening day starter. They are in absolutely like get through mode, scratch out win mode, grind out wins mode. It's not going to look pretty, as John Schneider has been saying lately. It's going to be grimy. There are going to be players playing out of position. You're going to be looking for contributions from guys who spent their entire seasons in the minors and haven't faced much big league pitching in their careers. And like, lo and behold, to this point, they've had a David Schneider and Ernie Clement and a Spencer Horowitz show up and make legitimate above replacement level contributions. They've had guys like Kevin Biggio who've been playing out of position at third base and shortstop and actually handling things well there. They've had Alejandro Kirk step up behind the plate and play better offensively lately while taking on more workload. These are the things that, that they're going to need if they're going to be successful down the stretch. Yeah, they need big time contributions from that Buffalo crew and they've been getting them, which is it's kind of remarkable. I do think if you put Ernie Clement in Coors Field for a full season, I honestly think he'd hit 285. Like I think Spencer Horowitz would probably hit like 35 doubles. So, you know, it's a good way to ease in. Um, and and certainly the contributions. I mean, Horowitz, that catch and foul ground the other day in Oakland, great range, great awareness of his of his situation um, to be able to make that play. And to me, you know, Davis Schneider remains the guy who's most impressive to me in all this. And when I look at not only this year, but moving ahead, Davis Schneider, to me, I don't know where you land on this one. To me, he looks like a legit Major League bat who can contribute against Major League pitching on a somewhat consistent basis. Fastball hit down the left field line. It's gone! This guy is something else, isn't he? Absolutely something else. Uh, what a story he is writing right now. I mean, this is really special, folks. Six home runs in 13 games. He's got an idea. What, what would you project his weighted runs created plus and his wins above replacement to be over a full season in which he gets to, like, say, 500 plate appearances? Good question. 500 plate appearances for Davis Schneider. I would say weighted runs created plus between 105 and 110. 
yeah, I think he could hit 20 plus homers. I think he could be a two, two and a half war player. And that's an opinion shared by some people, at least within the organization that think that would be possible. So, I, you know, I don't know where you land. I don't know if you think that's too aggressive or too conservative, but I think 105 to 110 is, is a reasonable guess. So to me, like, I think 105 WRC plus is realistic. Like I would more so put it in the band of like 100 to 107 rather than the 105 to 110 that that you had. I would put the wins above replacement more so in the like one to two rather than you had it at one and a half to two and a half. So like you're, you're definitely, you know, more bullish on him over a a full season than I am. I'm probably a bit more bearish. Um, I think that, Guys like him, Horowitz, like absolutely they are playing very well right now and giving the Blue Jays very necessary contributions. But like I think that when the Blue Jays project forward over what these guys could mean over a full season, um, which is something that they're doing next year because obviously they have a lot of like holes to fill uh, on the position player side, I think that for both of them, more realistically, the projection would be like – 100 to 105 wrc plus and like a one to one and a half win player um and that's that's not nothing like that's valuable that's something that you need um that's something that like the you know teams like the dodgers and and the cardinals like good developmental teams have like found ways to you know from within call up you know guys for lack of a better term like just big leaguers people who can fill in there but i do think and this is more of like an off-season question, really, than something we should be talking about right now in the thick of a playoff race. But I do think the Blue Jays like need to think about how they're going to address the ceiling of their 2024 roster because a lot of the players that they could be using from within to cover for some of the vacancies that are going to be created this off-season are more so towards like the floor and the sort of stable MLB regular profile rather than somebody who's going to be providing like a ceiling of, you know, 120, 125 WRC plus and three or four wins above replacement. Right, right. And those guys are hard to find. Even when you think you found them, sometimes they're not actually there. I mean, you know, speaking of offensive contributions here, just looking at George Springer, this is a guy who's in a $150 million contract and his OPS plus is 103. So sometimes you think you got something and and there are steps back offensively. Or you have a Brandon Belt who comes out of nowhere and he's got a 132. So these things can go in different directions. I think with David Schneider, 28th round pick, six home runs already. This is already found money. Everything else at this point is just you know gravy, really, when you look at what he's been able to do. And of course, uh, I think that he's going to continue to get at-bats down the stretch. Now, as for these guys who are currently injured... My read is Bo Bichette could be back within the next week or so. Does that line up with what you've been seeing in Oakland? I mean, this is a huge, huge lever for this team, I think, not only offensively, but also defensively. Yeah, so Bo had a basically just like a day off on Monday here in California. Um, getting out of Denver on Sunday night was a bit of a hellacious experience. Like I know you were there and you saw what the weather was like. So Blue Jays ended up grounded on the tarmac uh, in Denver for a couple hours trying to get out there after what was like a very long Sunday, as you're well aware, with a delay in that game and a game yes. that um, carried on for a very long time. So uh, the Blue Jays got out of Denver very late got into California, uh, you know, in the wee hours on Monday and then had to play a game at one o'clock. So I think that, you know, workloads were managed and, you know, Bo didn't do a lot on Monday. So I didn't 
witness him doing a ton. But from what I've been told, he has been running really aggressively, really dialing up yeah. the intensity. He hasn't stopped hitting essentially since he hit the IL. So to me, I think the weekend is very realistic. I think that Friday is even in play, like the first game against Kansas City uh, to get Bo back off the IL. Um, but like Friday, Saturday, Sunday, one of those days, I think the, the weekend is very realistic. And I don't think that at this time, this is someone who's going out on a rehab assignment. I think he's going straight from the IL yeah. to your major league roster. Oh, yeah, I agree. And, you know, watching him, he ran some sprints on that long Sunday um, in Denver, uh, he ran some sprints that morning and looked pretty comfortable. So that was a positive sign um, for Bo Bichette. I think, too, like we're at a point in the season where rosters are expanded to the max that they ever will be, which is 28. So even if Bo was to the point that he could pinch hit and jog to first base, well, you know, with all due respect to Mason Coy, who really has has done a nice job defensively for this team and can give you some speed off the bases, I think with all due respect, you'd rather have Bo Bichette. Ground ball, knocked down by Bichette, throw to first, they got him! What a play by Bo Bichette for the second down. And you'd rather have Bo Bichette in a partial role. So I would be inclined personally to activate him um, as soon as he's ready and just roll with that. And then with Chapman, last I saw Matt Chapman, he still had that brace on his finger, which gives me the inclination, gives me the idea that he's probably going to need just a bit more time to get back. Yeah, Chapman is behind Bichette at this point, just as far as I uh, as I understand it. I'm not expecting him to be activated on the weekend, whereas I'll almost be surprised if Bo isn't activated on the weekend at this point. Um, and I think that you know with Chapman, it's just going to be getting back to swinging a bat and then being comfortable swinging a bat because like I think that where it really gets bothersome for him is when he has these long plate appearances as he is wont to do few players in baseball see more pitches per plate appearance than Matt Chapman and he's taking a lot of swings he's fouling a lot of pitches off and he's like you know having to you know really grip the bat in a repeated and intense way in a very short amount of time I think that that's where it gets somewhat problematic for him so I I think that he's got to get to that point before you know he's going to come off the IL but uh, you know, again, someone that the the Blue Jays are going to want to get back to the big league level as quickly as possible. And, and that could mean foregoing a, a rehab assignment in, in his case as well. All right. Well, there it is on the injury front for the Blue Jays for now. Uh, we're going to step aside for a moment here on At The Letters, but we will be back shortly and continue our Blue Jays discussion in a moment. Listen to At The Letters ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. All right, we are back on At The Letters here talking about the Toronto Blue Jays. We still have a few more topics to get to. And we mentioned earlier in the show the contributions from some of these guys from Buffalo and Arden. Let's return there to Ernie Clement, Spencer Horowitz, of course, Mason McCoy, Davis Schneider, Tyler Heineman now catching a couple times a week. These guys are necessary to this push. There's no other way around it. And they are providing some big hits. And they are providing some energy. So what is your sense of what these guys are offering at a time the Blue Jays still have almost no room for error? You hear that word energy a lot in Spark. And I mean, they, you know, they will take nothing for granted on a major league field right now because they have been working their entire years to get to this opportunity and to get to this level. So they aren't quite as worn down by the grind necessarily as maybe some of the you know, guys have been in the big leagues 
all year have been. So um, they, they really do take nothing for granted. So that's part of it. I think also what's been really impressive, and this is like more so Schneider and Horowitz than, uh, than Ernie Clement. But um, I mean, Clement, like, by the way, something we're not talking about a whole lot, uh, sneaky fast like is putting up like some really impressive sprint speed numbers. Like it already his max sprint speed is second on this team um, and fast. his average. Yeah. He's legitimately really fast. And his average sprint speed is, uh, you know, really up, up high among the, the fastest blue Jays as well. I think that that maybe could be something that leads to him having a role on this team. Once a Bichette and the Matt Chapman are back. Cause I think that is something that the blue Jays would value in that, 14th position player spot is having a pinch run option and someone who can bring a bit of a, a speed and contact approach you know even if the plate appearances aren't necessarily there for him i mean i think he would have utility with just what he's shown speed wise so that's on clement on schneider and horowitz i think the big thing with them is it's just a really professional plate approach that you're seeing from them you're seeing really strong swing decisions you're seeing very low chase rates um you're seeing two guys who really have a plan at the plate who really understand how they're going to be attacked, who are making adjustments, um, who are, you know, in the case of David Schneider, like working really hard outside of games to address a hole in this swing with obviously the, the fastballs up. I mean, he was a guy who was every day in the batting cage with Hunter Mens getting, you know, the high velo machine turned up and having those high fastballs thrown at him just to work on his pitch recognition, to work on the ones that he goes after and the ones that he doesn't. This guy's been working a lot on his intent with Guillermo Martinez and on the pitches that he can do damage against and that that he can't. Um, like, I, I just, I think that that's why you see guys like Schneider and Horowitz at the big league level right now, rather than perhaps more toolsy prospects like an Addison Barger or an Arelvis Martinez, who are also having very good years at AAA. But I think it comes down to like the reliability in approach and the Blue Jays knowing that we're going to get a guy who's going to go to the plate and have a plan, make strong swing decisions, see some pitches, make a pitcher work, um, and who's going to make adjustments effectively at the big league level and two guys as well who's like routines away from the field whose habits away from the field um, away from play i should say like a lot of these routines and habits happen at the field but away from like in game in terms of how they prepare how they recover i mean how they game plan all that stuff that stuff's really strong from schneider and horowitz so i think that's why you see those guys getting the opportunity right now whereas more tooled up guys like like a barger and, and like a martinez aren't yeah and these guys certainly um, can handle the bat at the major league level and can give you even Clement too, like Clement bat to ball, you know, along with the the sprint speed. Um, he can hit you some doubles, ran into one for a home run the other day at Coors. So and down the left field line and it's a home run. Ernie Clement ties it up with a solo blast. Second, You know, you're getting a little bit of offense. I do think that there's like, a defensive question with and I'll, and I'll throw Santiago Espinal into this too because Espinal is hitting really well right now it's his best offensive stretch of the season Kevin Biggio doing it all I mean give Kevin Biggio credit you know for mentally staying as sharp as he has to be in this position right now after a lot of part-time plays and struggles early in the season Biggio coming through um, at a time that they need him but really for all these guys with the exception of Mason McCoy who's really you know up 
in the majors in part because of his defense. There is, I think, a defensive question. I think with Ernie Clement, we saw it on the weekend. He got a little exposed at shortstop. Bo Bichette's a better major league shortstop than Ernie Clement. I think David Schneider, like, you probably don't want him at third base. Might not have the arm to play third on a regular basis. Cavan's been doing a really good job there for now, but we know that wasn't the most comfortable spot for him a couple years ago. So what we're seeing holistically here is a shift away from defense and saying, let's get some offense. And I think that's probably what Schneider, John Schneider is referring to when he says it's going to get a little bit ugly because he knows these guys aren't the smoothest defenders out there. But look, if they can run into one, it can work as a whole. Oh, yeah. And, you know, the Blue Jays have been right on that precipice of Dalton Varsho catcher a couple of times recently yeah. as well. So, uh, you know, that's that's going to be a reality with uh, with Danny Jansen, uh, you know, sidelined for likely the rest of the regular season. He's going off to see a specialist in Pennsylvania on Wednesday and should be some more, you know, answers to come from that just in terms of like how aggressively Danny Jansen can push this rehabilitation and, you know, whether he can get himself to a place where he can play, uh, you know, within a faster timeline than you might expect for uh, a finger fracture but typically these things are kind of cut and dry um, in terms of like just the healing process with bones uh, it's pretty reliable how long that takes to to get back to a, a place where you can compete when it comes to espinal i mean i think that he's made a nice adjustment lately in just recognizing how he's being approached and how he's being pitched he was at a point where he's just getting a ton of fastballs particularly early in counts i mean he was seeing something like 60 65 percent early count fastballs uh, so he responded to that. And then you see him come up in a big pinch hit spot um, in the 10th inning on Monday. And what does he get from Francisco Perez? First pitch fastball. And Santiago Espinal is ready for it, and he's all over it. He clobbers it, and it is a double in a huge spot in the 10th inning. First pitch he has seen after sitting on the bench the entire game. I mean, that's been another thing that's been an adjustment for him. This is a guy who started like 120 games last year. I mean, he was used to being a regular player and to seeing much more consistent plate appearances and just having a lot more tempo and rhythm to his game just in terms of the opportunities that he was getting. Well, now he's coming off the bench a lot more. So he's had to really rework a, a new approach and, and new routines that he goes through um, in order to pinch hit or, you know, to come into games late as a defensive replacement and, and then maybe getting at bat. After that, you know, mid-middle innings, he's kind of going into the batting cages of Hunter Mentz to go through a hitting routine and to do some work off a high velo pitching machine and just get some game simulated reps. Not so easy in Oakland where uh, visitors batting cages are in center field. So like before his no pinch way. hit opportunity. Yeah. You know that? Oh, the visitors batting cages are in center field. So if you're, like it's not the, the Coliseum, Ben, you know this. It's not a major league facility. Oh, I know. Like, it's I, just I, not. I know. And, and look, like, uh, yeah, I, I covered a series there a couple years ago and I actually enjoyed it because of how different it is. But in no way is that a professional environment. Now, I didn't know where the batting cage was, but it is just it is not. And it's really actually sad for the Oakland team and for the fans. And, you know, I don't mean to make light of a situation that a, a halfway competent ownership group would solve in a matter of months. But like. It's an embarrassment. Like, and I'm not surprised to hear that the cage is in center field. Yeah, it's it's deeply unserious, and you like you see it on TV when you just see the standard of the dugout. Like, you just see the condition that the dugouts are in, and like where players are sitting, literally during the game. Um, like, it's just like you said, embarrassing. But then the stuff behind the scenes as well. Like on the visitors' side, 
the coaches offices are on a different floor than the players clubhouse. So like if a player right. wants to go talk to a coach or a coach wants to go talk to a player, like they're going up and down stairs to different parts of the facility. Like that is not the norm. <laughs> that is not <laughs> what it is like at a, uh, not a lot at, of split at, at a, levels. No, that's not what it's like in a standard major league environment. Like the way that players access the field they walk down a very long hallway that is like truly only wide enough. You would have seen this when you were here last year, truly only wide enough for like one person to comfortably walk through. And there are two lanes of traffic going through that very long and narrow hallway. And on one lane is fans. And on the other lane is the professional baseball players. Yeah. who are literally like walking through fan congregation areas to get to the field. You don't have dedicated field access solely for the players of the game. Like it's just shocking in the yeah. year 2023. And then, yeah, the batting cages are in center field. So if you're like a player in the middle of the game and you want to go take some swings, you cannot, unless you're literally going to run out through the field of play into center field to get out there. Like that's Man, what that's Santiago Espinal, that's what he would have had to do to go through his typical in-game routine, a typical in-game routine that he has because in 29 other ballparks, he can go do that. So what does he do like on Monday in Oakland? He goes into the weight room and sets up like this makeshift tee with a net and tries to simulate his routine off this makeshift tee and net in a weight room that is not designed to be having swings taken in it. So like that's just you know credit to Espinal for coming up and still find being able to get a hit. Uh, you know, in the tenth inning, despite his preparation being thrown off, but yeah, it's it's a you know it's an example of how I mean, Oakland just as a franchise like is not of MLB standard, but certainly the facilities are the worst in baseball. Yeah, I would say I don't even know what number twenty nine would be, but it's not close to Oakland. I don't think anything's really close. Now, okay, so here's one other point on the infielders and on the depth. Other players wanted in here, and the Blue Jays considered like starting at the trade deadline. The Blue Jays considered going after outside help, right? Guys like Mark Canna and Tommy Pham who were available and the Blue Jays considered those. They're believed, you know, from from some of the conversations that you and I have had, Arden, you know, it sounds like they had some real interest in Mark Canna, didn't end up working out. And then you have Davis Schneider come up, lo and behold, you had homers, both of those guys combined in the month of August. And then toward the end of August, you get to the end of the month, this is when you know, free agents start signing with different teams. Some guys are on waivers um, because it's that last window to add players who are going to be playoff eligible. And at that point in time, my understanding is some established major league players, including one established uh, middle infielder that I heard from, wanted to join the Jays. They wanted to, and they saw, hey, you guys are trotting out these AAA players. Like, let's let's see if there's a fit to be had here. And then the Blue Jays decision makers in the front office said, we're actually going to stick with these guys. We believe with our own guys that we can be better off with the likes of Clement, Davis Schneider. And so that's actually been paying off in the month of September. And so I think it's kind of interesting to note that because there could be bigger name guys here, but instead the Jays are relying on some of these stories that they've developed internally. Yeah, they could have gone out and gotten like a much more established, capable, big league shortstop like a Paul DeYoung. But thankfully they didn't do that. <laughs> Well, 
Yeah, that's uh, that's a miss <laughs> all around. But, that's for sure. Look, may- maybe there was a lesson learned there, right? Was that hey, like you know, it's it's hard to get traded midseason and to come into a new environment and to try to perform and to have that that expectation and that pressure, both on field and off field, where you're trying to like pick up your entire life and learn new routines, new rhythms, new environments, and and move a family and figure out what you're going to do just in your personal life aside from you know hey meet a bunch of new teammates and coaches and trying to contribute with a with a new team like it's not easy we saw what merrifield go through it last year i think you saw dalton varsho go through it at the beginning of this season and then certainly you saw uh, paul de go through it as well but yeah maybe a bit of learning experience there that the blue jays like or you know thought well maybe we should give opportunities to our internal players who have been at least in our organization if not the big league level all year and have that familiarity because look a lot of like when you see Ernie Clement like getting you know turning pickoff plays at second base at the big league level that's because the Blue Jays have the same pickoff plays installed at triple a so like Ernie Clement Davis Schneider have been running those pickoff plays like with Casey Candell and the whole crew down there like even at triple a they have a lot of the same processes and routines and meeting structures for how they get ready for games and how they process information uh go through scouting reports build game plans how they train like what you know uh, tools they utilize like prior to games so there is like a bit of that unfamiliarity that can be lifted there. The other interesting thing with the point you, you mentioned about, you know, some players that the Blue Jays decided not to pursue and not to add to their roster ahead of September 1st, which is when you have to have a player on your 40-man roster for them to be postseason eligible, is that the player, the, the Blue Jays made claims on some of those players that the Los Angeles Angels put on waivers. I don't know the exact names, but I can take some pretty good, guesses i think and i can speculate that Ronaldo lopez was yeah. likely one of them and i think that hunter renfro harrison bader would also be guys that would have been very strongly considered by the blue jays i mean i heard they made two to three claims on some of those angels players so it was always unlikely that they would get to the blue jays in the waiver priority but there is an alternate reality where they do and the blue jays would have added some players ahead of september 1 yeah, and I think those are some pretty interesting ones. It's a whole dynamic that's actually really interesting. Um, and it does tell us, if nothing else, the Jays had the resources to do it. So they could have added further to their payroll. Um, didn't end up happening. No surprise that those players were claimed by other teams. But there are a couple, before we let you go here, Arden, I know you got to get to one the other part. thing. Oh, one yeah. other thing, Ben, like people will, you know, the kind of the name brand player among that group was Lucas Giolito. Right. Because he's, you know, just based on, you know, talent, like probably the best player that was available when the Angels put half their roster on waivers. Um, And obviously he didn't have, you know, his his best showing in his, uh, you know, first uh, appearance with uh, with the Cleveland Guardians. But like you, you look at the talent and you look at the stuff that he throws and you look at what's there. It's a really good pitcher. And the Blue Jays had that conversation. Uh, I don't believe they actually made a claim on Giolito, but they definitely had that conversation because when a player that good hits waivers, you have to think, even if we have like five really good starters right now that we feel really good about, we can't close ourselves off to adding a talent like this to our roster. So I think like the fact that conversation even happened and the fact that the Blue Jays made claims on players other than Giolito, that's just, you know, in my opinion, I don't think Giolito would, would have been one of the ones, but I think Lopez, Bader, Renfro, certainly. I think that is an interesting window just into their thinking, even in a, a broader sense as they construct rosters. Yeah, my understanding was they had talked through all those guys and um, 
it's an interesting time of year. It really is. And especially like the Giolito one, I hadn't heard that, that they were, you know, looking at that one pretty seriously. But it does actually connect to one of the last uh, topics that I want to touch on here. And that is Alec Manoa. Because if you have Alec Manoa healthy in your organization, ready to roll, and he's your six, then you're probably not thinking that hard about Lucas Giolito. But we know that that is not the case when it comes to Alec Manoa. Uh, he was optioned almost, let's say it's about August three 11th, weeks ago now. Yeah, coming up on four weeks ago uh, since he was optioned to uh, AAA and he has not pitched in a game since then. My guess, Arden, is at this point, it's going to be very hard for Alec Manoa to pitch in a AAA game this season because as of Friday, he was not pitching off a mound. He had not pitched in a game. So he is pretty far removed from being a legitimate option for the Blue Jays at the major league level. So let's just like work through the timeline here, right? Because I like, you know, we were, you reported on it when we were what in Baltimore or Cincinnati, wherever we were. Yeah, and you know, we, we've talked about it since, but there is definitely some mystery over how things played out here. So uh, essentially Alec Manoa gets optioned on August 11th. And at that time, he reports to the Blue Jays that he has been dealing with some quad soreness. He's been dealing with some back soreness. So they spend a couple of weeks running him through tests, running him through measurements, running him through imagery, just like getting to the bottom of what is happening with him physically. And they don't discover any significant structural concerns through that process. But a byproduct of that process is that Alec Manoa doesn't throw a pitch from a mound for two weeks. So by the time that he does report, to AAA two weeks after he was optioned, he has to begin a ramp-up process again. I mean, his arm is deconditioned at that point, and that process isn't we throw you straight into a game. That process is you start with long toss, and then you get off a mound, and then you kind of push your pitch limit in a bullpen, and then you can get into a game. But by the time you get into a game, you're at like 40, 50 pitches, and after that, you're going to want to get to 65 and then to 80. And we haven't even gotten to that point where Alec Manoa is in a game yet in this ramp up. So for those reasons alone, like it's completely unrealistic that we see him again at the big league level in the regular season because he's just still completing that process, which was necessary because he took two weeks without throwing. Yeah, that is a long time to go without throwing. And it's really a season that has just taken so many left turns. It has gone uh, really, really far from where this was a year ago this time, obviously pitching in huge playoff games for this team, third in Cy Young. It is not a good situation right now with Alec Manoa. And like you said, banged up physically, trying to get back to a point where he is um, you know, physically good to go. I'm told that he is with the team in Buffalo trying to ramp up. Um, so we'll see. You know, we'll see where this leads. Um, certainly, Alec Manoa is just 25 years old, so he's got a you know potentially a pretty long career ahead of him, baseball-wise. But you know, this has not been the way that anyone would have planned this out. And I think too, like there's a there's a lingering question of what this relationship looks like between Manoa and the people around this team, right? Because no one wanted the season to go this way. Alec Manoa didn't want it to go this way. The Blue Jays didn't. But I think in that process, like. The relationship for everyone involved, I just don't think is is as great as it was a year ago. 
And I think that like the important thing that needs to happen after this season is that all the stakeholders involved, so that is Manoa, that's his representatives, um, that's members of the Blue Jays front office, that's members of their medical staff, that's members of the coaching staff. Everyone needs to sit down and chart a plan and figure out, okay, what, what does our go forward look like? Short term, medium term, and long term in order to get you back to the picture that you have proven you can be at the big league level. Like, how do we get you right physically? How do we get you right mechanically? How do we get you right mentally? How do we just get everything back in sync and find out a way that you can get back to being a really successful pitcher at the big leagues and ideally for the Toronto Blue Jays and helping us win games? Because in that way, everybody wins, right? Like all of the motivations here are aligned. But like as things stand right now, Ben, like, and tell me if you disagree with this, but say Alec Manoa was healthy. And say that he was throwing regularly for the AAA Buffalo Bisons over the last several weeks. I don't think, and this is my opinion, that Alec Manoa is one of the Blue Jays' top seven preferred starting pitching options. Like, I don't think that he is one of the top seven guys that they would go to to start a game. And that's based on performance. And that's based on results. And that's based on how Alec Manoa has gotten to those results. Like you can look at the actual ERA and the actual walks. You can look at the expected numbers and like what the quality contact has been. You can look at the velocity and the way that he is like um, maintained his mechanics and his delivery. I mean, you can look at the movement on his pitches. Like I just think that Right now, the Blue Jays would feel they have seven better options than him, even if he were pitching regularly. To me, that's the most important thing here, aside from what Alec Manoa has been up to over the last four weeks. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, shout out to Hunjin Ryu. He's been actually pretty amazing since he's come back. And a swing and a miss. A strikeout of Arias. Back-to-back K's here in the second for Ryu. You can see he just takes a lot of spin off of it. He's way out in front. Arias with a wild swing. And you So I, I completely agree. I don't think he's anywhere close to the top seven. I think that, you know, functionally, as the Blue Jays were to, you know, proceed throughout the season, like, I think they would go to Bowden Francis. I think they would, as a starter before they would go to Manoa. I think they would have Trevor Richards start before they go to Manoa. I think Jay Jackson would be an opener before they go to Manoa. I think Genesis Cabrera would be an opener. Like, I think it would be like many, 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 many injuries would have to happen. And essentially, even then, it's an open question because Manoa would have to be ready physically. So I just think, you know, for all intents and purposes, He's not part of the major league depth chart right now. That's why he's not on the major league roster. He's not on the minor league roster. So yeah, it's too bad. Like when Alec Manoa is a fun pitcher to watch when he's on and um, he still has a lot of potential and, you know, we'll see where this one goes, but I agree that he's not close to that depth chart right now. No. And like the only way that I think he would be is if he were pitching right now and then Kevin Gosman takes a comebacker and breaks a leg and like Jose Barrios, you know, blows out his shoulder and Chris Bassett is like flattened by a piano. And then all of yeah. a sudden it's okay. Now we're so far down the depth chart that we would have to rely on Alec Manoa. But uh, also you have way bigger issues at that point than worrying about Alec Manoa's ability to get big league hitters out over five, six innings and repeat his mechanics yeah. and keep his tempo down the mound and maintain his velocity and throw strikes. All of a sudden you're thinking about some very different considerations, uh, you know, with uh, yeah. regards to your ability to qualify for the postseason and then be competitive 
in the postseason. So, uh, you know, I, I like I do think that, you know, with Manoa, like it, it really is a conversation about how you get him right for 2024 and yep. just what his future looks like with for his the sake of his own career and for the sake of the Toronto Blue Jays wanting to win games as well. You know, what's good for Alec Manoa is good for the Toronto Blue Jays and vice versa. So I just think that like everyone needs to sit down and sit down and chart out that plan and put something yep. in place that everyone agrees with and everyone feels is best and just go forward with that but like as it pertains to 2023 i'm not really considering alec manoa for the blue jays in a major league capacity and if you know if i'm looking at how the blue jays have handled this and if they could have done anything differently honestly it would just be that when they did option him on august 11th just send him to the complex league um yeah and like because right now he's been eating a spot for the buffalo bisons roster for the last however many weeks and that's put the bisons at a disadvantage like that's why you see him going on to the temporarily inactive list like it's just a paper move because like the bisons are like hey we need somebody who can throw pitches for us right now um you know it doesn't say anything i don't think about alec manoa other than you know if i think the blue jays should have sent him to the complex league in august when they optioned him but i think at the time that the blue jays optioned him they believed that he was going to continue pitching yeah well here's one and you know not to get too far down this rabbit hole here but um Here's one where like you could argue that considering Manoa was so important to this team last year, had such an incredible season last year, you could argue that he could have been put on the injured list in August as a way to, you know, have him continue to collect major league service and major league salary. And that that would have been a nod of respect to a pitcher who was really good. That obviously didn't happen. He was obviously just optioned to the minor leagues. But end of the day, his performance was minor league caliber performance. So, you know, there's no question that that option was merited. He pitched at the level not of a major league pitcher, especially on a very, very good major league pitching staff, um, which, it sh- which it should be noted the Toronto Blue Jays are. He was not at the level of this staff. He was at the level of the minors. So an option is justified, even if, you know, you could have made a case for, you know what, as a nod of respect, we're going to IL him. And I think the Blue Jays went through that process for two weeks when they originally optioned him and did the testing and screening and imaging and um, measurements and all kinds of things that you can do to determine whether there is a real structural concern here and whether this is something that needs to be addressed and whether it needs to be a revision or just how you kind of resolve what is leading to the soreness. And it seems like in the opinion of the blue jays medical department like and and, you know just based on the objective results that they brought back they didn't have a reason to ILO. that's right arden i want to bounce one more thing off of you here and this one has to do with vladdy jr um before i let you go here so vlad jr obviously not having the greatest season and like to me I'm totally fine with watching Vlad Jr. wave at sliders off the plate here and there or even make a mistake defensively at first base because he is such a joy to watch in other ways, whether it's sliding into second base or rounding third, trying to score on a double or running down the right field line, catching a pop-up or going yard with a 115-mile-an-hour ball off the bat and just crushing baseballs the way he was born to do. The 0-1, this one launched down the left field line. It is... But, man, I got to say, when he hit that line drive at Coors Field that ends up going off the wall and is admiring it out of the box when you're down one and your team is two and a half out of a playoff race, man, 
that is a tough look. And I got to say, as someone who like really enjoys watching Vlad Jr. for the most part, that was really tough to watch. Like it was to me, that was a real lack of hustle, a lack of urgency, a lack of focus. Those are the things the Blue Jays should be controlling. And Vlad Jr. should be a leader on this team. And that to me, that was a tough one. And and it's, it just, you know, immediately overshadowed, of course, like he does more good than bad for this team. But I think that in that situation, you're losing and you hit a ball that hard, just hustle out of the box, right? Not if he can make a big difference this time of year. So that was, to me, that was probably the least impressive moment I've seen from Vlad Jr. this season, if not in his entire career. That that moment, that day, is that not just Vladimir Guerrero Jr.'s season in a nutshell, in that he barrels a ball, like 110 off the bat with that great line drive um, launch angle, and it doesn't go as far as clearly he expected it to, or that any of us expected it to off the bat. Like that's yeah. been the, the most confounding thing for me is that the balls of Vladimir Guerrero Jr. barrels this year just don't go as far as you would expect them to. And I think that that is one of the things that like has really led to the results that we've seen from him this year. And it's a complete mystery to me. Like I have no idea. I don't know enough about topspin and backspin and you know how you, you impact a, a baseball and the things that can lead to that. But so there's that at play. There is the like absolutely, you know, uh, justified frustration that people feel when he doesn't hustle out of the box on that play. As you mentioned, Vladimir Guerrero Jr. is a leader on this team by virtue of being one of its best players. And right now with Bo Bichette out of the lineup um, and Matt Chapman out of the lineup and with the season that George Springer has been having and Alejandro Kirk has been having, I mean, Vladimir Guerrero Jr. is one of the most impactful players in this lineup, even if he hasn't is not in the season that anybody really expected him to based on what we've seen from him prior. So Vlad absolutely has to set an example as a leader. And that comes down to his intensity, his focus, his effort, uh, you know, things before the game, his preparation, um, his routines, just his overall composure. I mean, he's young, but he's still a leader on this team and and your best player set your tone. So uh, yeah, I think you're, you're right to criticize him for a lack of hustle there. But then you look at that game overall, he has that moment. He has the ball that doesn't go as far as you'd expect it to. And yet he has two of the hardest hit balls in that game. He has a Homer off of Chase Anderson. That was just an absolute missile. It's all right there. Like all the things about Vladimir Guerrero junior season that have been tantalizing, that have been frustrating, that have been confounding. Everything was there in that game on Sunday at course. Yeah, it absolutely was. And to me, it's just, you know, this is a team that's spoken now for a couple weeks, at least about needing to play with urgency and needing to to just leave it all on the field. And I'm telling you, you're leaving something on the field when you when you play like that. And this team collectively, I can't take it seriously as playing with a sense of urgency if there are moments like that from your biggest player. Like it's just, it doesn't add up. And that's something that the coaching staff has to get through to Vladdy. That's something that the other players have to get through to one another or else one player, two players, three players, they can undermine the effort of the collective and then it can fall flat. And you saw John Schneider have a conversation with him in the dugout in a very public way. John Schneider, very aware that cameras are watching everything that happens in the dugout. Vladimir Guerrero Jr., also very aware. So you have that conversation there where everyone can see it. I'm sure that conversation took place behind closed doors as well. 
um, just with regards to like the effort, the intensity, like the focus that is required of him in his uh, position on this team. Um, but I like, just to be candid, I think that those conversations have happened before in the past. Like it's not yeah. the first time. So yeah. clearly the conversations weren't effective in the past. And like, to your point at this, at this stage of the season in a postseason race with, uh, you know, I don't even, I think today the blue Jays are a game and a half, half a back game. or they're only half, half a, game. a game back. Right. With 24, 25 to play, whatever it is. Uh, there, there's absolutely no excuse. Like you have yeah. absolutely every reason to be at 100% intensity and effort in everything that you do at this point in the season. Well, and like, cause here's the thing, like I actually want Vlad jr. To take it easy out of the, if I'm the blue Jays, I want Vlad jr. And if it's April the 15th, watch it, buddy, take your time. You know, it's, um, it's May the 7th, you're in Pittsburgh and, uh, you hit a double play ball you know what? Jog out of the box. I don't care. Like it's, it's May the 7th, you know, but, or, or if you're down seven, you're down eight, you're up seven, you're up eight, admire it, take the night off. Like don't even start, just rest, like take your rest. But in that game situation, you're down one, you're two and a half back in the wild card. That to me is the exact situation where you should bust it down the line, even if it means that it will, you know, stretch your hamstring or give you a little bit more wear and tear the next day. Like that is exactly when, and it's not a great look for anyone in this organization when Vlad Jr. does not run there. And so I, I know I'm already at risk of talking about this too long and blowing it up out of proportion, but here's the thing. I'm never going to sit here and say, you know, oh, Pete Walker should have done this with this pitcher or Guillermo Martinez is a bad coach because of this, because those are the things with respect to coaching that it's so like it's fine motor skills. It's in the moment. It's, you know, against major league competition. There's so much that's hard to measure about that. But when it comes to just running out of the box, we actually can see and measure that really effectively. And it's really easy to see if someone's trying or not. And to me, there's just a message that somehow hasn't gotten through and they have to do that because there are going to be enough close games. Like clearly at this point in the season, the Jays are not going to win the wild card or lose the wild card by five games. It's going to be they're in on the last weekend or they're out on the last weekend. So in that context, knowing that if the game is close, everyone, not just Flatty, everyone on this team needs to be doing the things that they can control when it comes to focus and effort. Well, and the Blue Jays have put themselves in this position where really small things like that are going to be under a magnifying glass because you're a half game out of the playoffs. If you had built a big lead atop the division or even a big lead in the first wildcard spot, things like this might not be quite as meaningful because you have some cushion. Like you have some comfort there, but uh, by virtue of how the Blue Jays have performed to this point, really small things on the margin, really small attention to detail, stuff like that is really going to matter. Like that, things like that could be the reason why you don't make the postseason. It worked out for Vladdy that time, but yeah. it it was like on the verge of not working out. Um, and the Blue Jays won that game uh, as they have won more often than they have recently in spite of you know the the way that these wins have looked great that's what you need to be doing but the blue jays aren't blowing teams out right now and they aren't just padding a lead atop the division they are fighting for every inch for everything that they can get so that's why small things like that actually are very meaningful right now um and look it's a, like credit to vladi for posting throughout his yep. mlb career this is a guy who has played 
every single damn day for like what four seasons running now yeah. right like he played every day in 2020 the shortened season and 161 in 2021 160 in 2022 on pace for another 160 this year he is certainly beat up physically i think that when there are opportunities to take it easy physically like you said on like routine ground balls or routine fly balls like just jog don't sprint that is okay because at this point i promise you he's very beat up he dealt with a knee issue in spring training dealt with a wrist issue earlier this year we just saw him out back to back dh days clearly this is not a guy who is 100 physically as nobody is who has played as much as he has this year but when it is like something like that in a very critical game like a decisive play in a game that is on the margins in a playoff race the blue jays are, are, are in absolutely you need full consistent effort yeah exactly dial it in dial it in and you know i i really you know vladdy is a he's a really good player he is generally really good vibes um i think that that helps for a team as they go grind through a long season I find him to be an incredibly compelling player to watch. And I have since, you know, before he debuted in the major leagues, we were talking about Vlad Jr. And, and he's consistently been incredibly fun to watch. So I'm not, I'm not losing sight of that, but dial it in is what I would say right there. I think we should uh, step aside here. We've already run pretty long here on ATL. Um, we have lots to get to as soon as next week. Um, of course, you can watch Arden on Sportsnet. In the meantime, stay tuned. We will have lots more ATL episodes for you as the season comes to an end. Win, lose, or draw. So thank you for listening. And thanks to our producer, Christian Ryan, for putting all of this together on At The Letters. 